Good evening, this is Rob McClure and Vicki Iden bringing you your local news live from the WORT studios on Bedford Street in downtown Madison. Here are the headlines for this evening. The Wisconsin Institute for Law and Liberty, or WILL, filed a complaint with the Wisconsin Elections Commission today against the city clerk of Racine for employing mobile voting sites. The conservative law firm alleges that the use of the mobile van violates state law governing alternate absentee ballot sites. It also contends that sites selected for the van to be located could give Democrats a partisan advantage. The lawsuit, filed on the behalf of a Racine resident, says that because the van was not parked as close as possible to the Racine city clerk's office, the van was illegal. Primary election night ended with the release of dueling parody websites last night going after both sides in the state's U.S. Senate race. The Milwaukee Journal Sentinel reports that the first website, SenatorRonJohnson.com, was constructed by and paid for by Toby Morton, a former writer for Mad TV. Morton had previously constructed sites about Senator Marco Rubio and Governor Greg Abbott of Texas. The Johnson campaign then released their own parody site about his challenger. The site, MandelaBarnesForSenate.com, hits the lieutenant governor for voting to end cash bail and for allegedly supporting the elimination of the Department of Immigration and Customs Enforcement, a charge that Barnes denies. Uh, As of just a few moments ago, the websites are still active, so you might want to have a look at them. Wisconsin Public Radio reports that a legislative study committee on sexual misconduct in the National Guard held its first meeting yesterday. This follows years of reports of misconduct and a 2019 study by the Guard that found procedures for handling misconduct accusations were deficient or failing. The study found that the Guard failed to keep survivors of sexual assault updated on their cases and found that the cases themselves were not properly tracked. Colonel Douglas Moore with the Guard said that since the study, they've implemented broad reforms such as continuously updating survivors on their cases. The new legislative committee will look into that study and begin to create recommendations for the full legislature to improve the National Guard's response to sexual assault allegations. The Capital Times reports that the Madison Metropolitan School District will announce its COVID-19 safety protocols for the coming school year by August 19th. In late July, the district said it would announce their COVID plans shortly after Public Health Madison-Dane County released its update for guidance for schools. However, on Monday, the public health agency said that it, quote, is currently working on updated school guidance and will have more to share in coming weeks. Last year, MMSD was the only Wisconsin school district to have a mask mandate for the entire school year. Madison's first day of school is in less than three weeks from now. Those are the day's top stories. Now on to the rest of the day's news. During yesterday's partisan primary election, all eyes were on the Republican candidates for governor to see who would be taking on Governor Tony Evers in November. That race solidified a shift in Republican politics here in Wisconsin, with the old guard moving over to make way for the new. WORT producer Nate Weggehaupt has more. 
Yesterday's primary election was a packed one, and voters came out in droves to vote for their desired candidates. In Dane County, over 129,000 ballots were cast for yesterday's election, or about 35% of all registered voters. That's more than in past midterms, 3,000 more than in 2018's midterm primary, and about 76,000 more than in 2014's midterm primary. In a packed Democratic primary to unseat Republican Senator Ron Johnson, Mandela Barnes cruised to an easy victory as the Democratic nominee, winning more than three-quarters of the vote. That's after his three biggest opponents, Sarah Godlewski, Tom Nelson, and Alex Lazary, dropped out just weeks before the primary and threw their support behind Barnes. But the race for the Republican candidate for governor is where things get a bit more tricky. Tim Michaels won the Republican ticket last night, beating out other frontrunner Rebecca Clayfish. Michaels won by more than 30,000 votes, winning over 47% of the total vote. Michaels' win signals a shift in Republican politics, showing the power of a Trump endorsement and the waning influence of an endorsement by former Governor Scott Walker. Michaels was endorsed by former President Trump, while Clayfish was lieutenant governor during Scott Walker's administration and received his endorsement. At a victory party in Waukesha last night, Michaels thanked former President Trump for his endorsement. It was a tremendous validation of our meteoric rise in this campaign. He knows that we need to have new leadership in Madison, and he sees a lot of similarities. He didn't have to run for president. I don't have to run for governor. He wanted to drain the swamp. We found out it's a really big swamp, and I know that Madison needs firm executive leadership, and that's what I'm going to do as governor. Clayfish, who was endorsed by former President Mike Pence, in addition to Walker, conceded at around 10.30 last night. I urge you all to stay in the fight, because the fight now is truly against Tony Evers and the liberals who want to take away our way of life. And I honestly still believe that hard work does still matter, particularly in our local races. Michael's victory comes as he performed better than expected in southeastern Wisconsin, an area that voted heavily for Scott Walker in 2018. Take, for example, Ozaki County. In 2018, the county voted almost 2-1 to one for Walker and Clayfish over Tony Evers in the general election and voted over 90% for Walker in the primary. But last night, Clayfish won the county by just over 5,000 votes, not enough of an edge to beat out Michaels on the statewide stage. In Washington County, where Walker and Clayfish won by more than 30,000 votes in 2018, Michaels actually beat Clayfish by just a few thousand votes. The end results? The Trump-endorsed candidate beat out the Walker-endorsed candidate. Michaels is now looking ahead to November, when he will take on Governor Tony Evers. After thanking his opponents in his victory speech last night, Michaels then went on the offensive. That's what this race has always been about, and that's what the general election race is going to be about as well. Standing up for the hardworking people of Wisconsin, they've been left behind by the Democratic Party that just wants to focus on the social issues. From my first day in office to my very last day as governor, jobs and the economy are going to be my number one priority. 
Meanwhile, another Trump-endorsed candidate gave Wisconsin's top Republican a run for his money. It was a squeaker for Assembly Speaker Robin Voss, who won by just 260 votes against challenger Adam Steen. Trump, who endorsed Steen, may have mobilized voters to turn against the state's top Republican. Steen, who held a toss-voss party on the eve of the primary to slingshot the incumbent in effigy, ended up gaining 4,824 votes to Voss's 5,084 votes in the Racine and Walworth County District. Voss has been criticized by some in the GOP for drawing a line in the sand, saying it's impossible to decertify the 2020 presidential election. Even a former Voss ally, Michael Gableman, endorsed Steen. Gableman, who was hired by Voss to review the 2020 presidential election last year, endorsed Steen and attended his watch party last night near Burlington. In a victory speech, Voss called Gableman an embarrassment to the state and suggested his election review could come to an end, an idea Democrats latched onto and called for again today. And Steen, who denies the results of the 2020 presidential election, has yet to concede to Voss. Eight other incumbent GOP lawmakers faced primaries yesterday. Of those, this was the only race that was close. Dane County, meanwhile, had several races in the state legislature. Dane County Supervisor Melissa Ratcliffe beat out fellow board member Annalise Eicher and former Madison Alder Syed Abbas for the Democratic nomination for Assembly Seat 46. She will be taking on Republican Andrew McKinney, who ran for a seat on the county board earlier this year. Alex Jewers won the Democratic nomination for Assembly District 79, where he will be running against Republican candidate Victoria Fueger. In Assembly District 80, containing Mount Horb in Verona, Mike Baer beat out four other candidates to win the Democratic nomination. He'll be facing Republican Jacob Lugenbuhl in November. The fall general election takes place on November 8th. Reporting for WORT News, I'm Nate Wuggiehout. And an additional result from yesterday was one that showed an unexpectedly tight race. You heard our producer just mention it there. Assembly Speaker Robin Voss beat his primary opponent, Adam Steen, by a mere 260 votes, a race which again showed in full force the growing influence of Donald Trump here in Wisconsin. Earlier today, our producer Nate Wegehout spoke also with Adam Rogan, a reporter from Racine. Rogan's been keeping a close eye on this race from the beginning, even if the rest of the state didn't catch up with it until recently. Rogan explains how a candidate could come seemingly out of nowhere to challenge the state's top Republican. I'm on the line with Adam Rogan, reporter with the Journal Times out of Racine. Adam, thank you so much for coming on here today. Thanks for having me. So just to start things off here, Adam, I feel like the rise of Adam Steen uh, came pretty quick. Can you give us a little bit of background about who Adam Steen is and what his platform is? Yeah, um, Adam Steen was uh, he, he he liked talking about he was born, um, he was raised on a farm in Indiana, and then he uh, moved to Wisconsin. I believe it was about ten years. So uh, he moved to Wisconsin to go to college. He became an engineer. Um, but then he was started dabbling in Republican politics uh, about five, six years ago, um, although he said he's always been a conservative. Um, he ran for Congress in 2018, um, didn't get out of the primary that Brian Stile won. Um, and then he 
it, it was it was strange that the the whole state started paying attention uh, to this to this race here in uh, Racine County in the last two or three weeks, especially after Trump upped his criticism of Robin Voss, and then of course eventually um, endorsed Adam Steen. But again, from the beginning, I remember I, I had the feeling this was going to be a close race, and this was going to be the closest race that uh, Robin Voss was, uh, has ever had, um, just because there is again so much distrust. In the 2020 election, in in the in the especially in more rural parts of the of the state, and Adam Steen really galvanized that. And he's also, I, I think it's fair to say, the very personal guy. He's very electable, which is why I think that a lot of other uh, others who distrust 2020 election have been moved to decertify, which doesn't appear possible. Um, had very little success, but he was able to really connect with the voters and got people really jazzed up. And so now you mentioned it last night's race was very close and you said that you sort of uh, had a feeling that this was going to be a really close race. Robin Voss ended up beating Steen by only about 200 votes last night. Can you sort of walk us through uh, why Steen was such a threat to Voss and Steen uh, in particular? How did he get to the point where he could legitimately go up against the state's top Republican? Uh, I think that, again, I I hate to bring everything back to the former president, but a lot of it really starts with Trump. Um, he, for again, Voss has openly never really been the biggest Trump fan. Um, and then, uh, w- and then when Adam Steen gave a speech last night where he did not even, he still has not conceded, he opened by thanking Trump and he thanked him several times throughout that speech. Um, because I think he knows as well as everyone else that having the endorsement of a f- former president, especially one who, who in, in a lot of ways, his supporters are a party of their own. Come, have a lot of power, and in that in District 63, which is our rural, Lucine, most of rural Racine County, uh, it's that's a that that area was won by Trump silently in 2016 and in 2020. Um, I the the night of the uh, uh, last night, I I thought of the coin flip. I, if you told me there was going to be less than one percent, I'd have believed you, and it ended up being less than three percent, so I wasn't that far off. Um, but yeah, it's also distrust in the 2020 election, and it's also. I think that especially when people are upset about whatever it is, they like change. They, regardless of what the change is, if somebody says, I'm going to come in and do something different, they can get a lot of support. That's one thing that I'm seeing was really banking on, that Robin Voss has been in office for, uh, he'll be um, in office for 19 years at the end of the, um, this next, uh, his next term. Um, and so and he said, like, this guy's been there for a long time. He, a lot of voters are unhappy. And so they were, he was able to galvanize people who were unhappy with Voss. Um, even from conservatives, and and nearly unseat him. And now you mentioned it before there, but Steen uh, did not concede the election last night. Looking to today, he he has he conceded yet today? Why why didn't he concede yesterday? Uh, last night he um, went out for his watch party um, and said that we are going to go home. Yeah, him and his wife said we're going to go home. We're going to get some rest. We're going to pray about it. I texted him last night. Um, he said he was going to hopefully get back to me sometime today, but the next steps are he has not. Although one of his core supporters, who is and uh, in, in kind of, I don't want to say campaign manager, but he's been doing a lot of campaigning in behalf of Adam Steen, is Harry Waite, who has made uh, nationwide headlines for um, intentionally illegally requesting ballots to prove that he could. Um, and then I was texting with him today, and Harry Waite told me that they are, they are considering a writing campaign um, that hasn't been decided if they can actually go forward with that. Um, and so whether or not that actually goes, it's not clear. It, it, it seemed clearly wanted and thought he, he thought he was going to win. Um, he told me he was losing 70% of the vote. Obviously he wasn't close to that, um, but it'll be, 
uh, again, it, he, this thing's not over. I, I should say it, the election's over, but Steen doesn't. I don't think he wants it to be, and I think he's ready to continue fighting to, to try to unseat Voss. And now, speaking of Voss, obviously the elephant in the room here is Michael Gableman, who was hired by Robin Voss to investigate the 2020 presidential election, but he has now sort of turned around and endorsed Adam Steen in this race. So now that Voss has won, what's been his reaction to Gableman pushing so hard to sort of get him out of office here? Um, the, the word that's been on my mind a lot these last few days is that it's just been vitriolic. He is not happy with the man he hired. Um, he told me and a couple other reporters last night um, that the Gableman is an embarrassment to the state. Um, he he didn't really expound so much on why that is. Um, again, I would assume it has something to do with his continued insistence that the 2020 election should be overturned. Um, Voss said he wants to be looking forward to changing election laws in the future, not looking back to try to overturn an election that was voted on almost two years ago now. Um, but again, I think Gableman feels he wasn't supported. Um, Gableman also firmly believes he uncovered vast amounts of fraud in the state. You know, there's no evidence of that. I've looked through the, the data he put together and it, there is no evidence that there was a massive amount of fraud in any way that Trump actually did win because he didn't. Um, and, and so the, the, in the last few months, as Voss has tried to wind down this investigation and tried to use it as a way to galvanize uh, election law changes, um, Gableman, is, the, the two have had a falling out, obviously. And, uh, and he, Voss said last night that next week he plans to meet with the Republican Assembly caucus and they're gonna, he, he made it clear he wants to end Gableman's contract and essentially let him go, fire him. Um, whether or not the rest of the Republican caucus will go along with it remains to be seen, although the impression I'm getting is that the, although there are a few vocal members of that caucus who support Gableman and support decertification, the majority still don't. Um, and then we have a chance Michael Gableman be uh, fired in the next week or so. And I've been talking with Adam Rogan, reporter with the Journal Times over in Racine, and we've been talking about Robin Voss, who won a very tight victory last night over his opponent, Adam Steen, in yesterday's election. Adam, thank you so much for coming on and talking with me here today. I appreciate it, man. Keep it up. 624 now, and you're listening to the live local news on WORT. Last night's primary election delivered some surprising wins. One that wasn't surprising, though, is a victory from longtime Democratic incumbent Doug LaFollette, who is headed on in November to face Republican Amy Ludenbeck in the race for Secretary of State. WORT reporter Tegan Carter has the story. In many states, the Secretary of State is responsible for administering elections. That's not so in Wisconsin, where the officeholder, elected in a statewide election, is charged with overseeing public records, filing deeds for state lands and buildings, and authenticating official acts. The office is also third in line to succeed the governor. But while the office doesn't hold much power now, it could in the future, as Republican candidates vow to restore power to run elections. The three Republicans seeking the office on last night's ballot have criticized the Wisconsin Elections Commission for its decisions during the 2020 presidential election. GOP candidate Amy Loudenbeck beat out Justin Schmitka and Jay Schrader in winning the Republican nomination to the office. And in the Democratic primary, longtime incumbent Doug LaFollette beat out challenger Alexia Sabor in a landslide, winning by more than 100,000 votes. But it's been a bumpy campaign for LaFollette, who is now in his record-breaking fourth decade of serving in the office. Ismus reported in May that LaFollette struggled to get nomination signatures in time for his name to appear on the ballot. In July, he faced Republican criticism for failing to send out required documents to Congress, citing a tight budget and lack of envelopes. 
Still, La Follette is hanging on for another round, relying on name recognition rather than campaign spending. Isthmus reports that La Follette spent only $86 in his campaign. His Democratic challenger, Alexia Sabour, spent 72 times that amount. So she had a tough time to get name identification, while I have very strong name identification across the state. And that was the major difference in the election. Representative Loudenbeck, meanwhile, raised about 130000 since the start of this year. And WIS Politics reports that after winning the Republican nomination last night, most of that cash is still on hand for the general election. In an interview with WORT in late July, Loudenbeck touted her party endorsements. Over 70% of my Republican colleagues are, are supporting me in my bid in the primary. And so I feel like that gives me a really good base from which to work to communicate. Over the past few decades, the Office of Secretary of State has been stripped of many duties, employees, and even its office space. Now it's down to one employee working from the basement of the Capitol building. Speaking with WORT, both primary winners, LaFollette and Loudenbeck, say they want to see the office expand. The Republicans have taken away the major responsibilities involving corporations and businesses, which are located with Secretary of State all across the country. It's very bad for Wisconsin and for Wisconsin's business community. But the Republican legislature, I've tried for more than 15 years to get them to restore those duties, and they will not do it. And because of gerrymandering, the Republicans are going to maintain control of the legislature for the indefinite future. It's very, very sad for Wisconsin. Coming in as a new secretary of state and working with people and talking about what other duties are appropriate to bring back to this office. And I look at what other states do. Other states do corporate registrations. They file deeds. They do elections. And we need someone that can answer questions and be accountable to voters. So I think it's a natural discussion that we should be having. Should we talk about bringing those duties back or at least involving the secretary of state in those kinds of functions? LaFollette has gotten far in his name recognition, electability, and his, quote, independent-minded Democratic views. For 44 years, he's held on to the office, even under Republican governors. But he admits this race may require a bit more campaigning effort. Well, it's going to be tough because my opponent will have the support of Mr. Trump and lots and lots of money, I'm afraid. So I'll have to work as hard as I can, try to raise a little money, maybe have some advertisements if I can afford to do that, and hopefully my name identification will help. There's only really one key issue in this election. That issue is to maintain the independence and the integrity of our Wisconsin election system. We established an election board almost 50 years ago, and the Secretary of State has had no involvement in elections. That's the way it should be. We don't want elected partisan politicians controlling the elections. My opponent, the Republican now, wants to move election responsibilities to the Secretary of State. That's a mistake. I'm opposing it, and that's the key issue. People need to vote to me, vote for me to protect the election. Representative Loudenbeck says she hopes her 12 years of legislative experience and work on the budget committee gives her the upper hand come November. I've got a broad base of support that I think comes from not just at the, the Republican base, but from a lot of just regular folks in Wisconsin that are interested in having the opportunity to have a new secretary of state that, that just does the job. Because at the end of the day, it is a job. It is important and it matters. And 
going into the primary, I feel like I'm the most credible and qualified candidate. And going into the general election, I'm going to do, you know, continue to, to reach out to people and earn their trust and earn their vote. I'm a really good listener and I'm a really good solver or at least helping to solve complex policy issues. That's what I enjoy. And I see this office that's sort of like a conundrum where there's not a whole lot there, but there could be, but why would anyone run? And then you have the name ID of Doug Follett. And you know what? I am put, putting myself out there to do a hard reset on that office and make it work again because it does, it, it, it should have value. It's an important, it's an important office that has sort of fallen from, you know, fallen from grace. And I think we need to resurrect it and see what we can do with it. LaFollette and Lambeck will go head-to-head on the ballot in the general election on November 8th. Reporting for WORT News, I'm Tegan Carter. And the time is now 6.33, and you're listening to the live local news on WORT. I'm your host, Robert McClure, here with my co-host, Vicki Iden. Thanks for staying with us for the second half. In the western part of Wisconsin sits the small town of Fountain City. There sits one of Wisconsin's stranger roadside attractions. On this week's archival edition of Parks and Landmarks, feature contributor Sean Bowles laments the death of one of his favorite weird little roadside attractions, The Rock in the House. Hmm. You're listening to Parks and Landmarks, an exploration of the underappreciated outdoors. This isn't exactly a Memorial Day episode, but I'd like to take my time today to eulogize one of my favorite weird little roadside attractions, Wisconsin's own Rock in the House. As I did the last time I wrote about this place, I should make it immediately clear, we are not talking about the house on the rock today. Most Wisconsinites are familiar on some level with the crazy house in the hills above Spring Green, Alex Jordan's mid-century middle finger to Frank Lloyd Wright. Again, that is emphatically not the house we're talking about today. The house on the rock is a mansion built on top of a rock. The rock in the house is just a normal house that a boulder happened to fall into. Though the two attractions' names bear a surface similarity, they could not be more different in purpose. The House on the Rock is a four-hour-long march through an immense collection of everything and nothing. It technically qualifies as a museum, though it seems to be curated by the same guy who writes the dreams I have after stuffing myself with too much Chinese takeout. Its only theme, so far as I can figure out, is the excesses of the 19th and 20th century American empire. On the other hand, the rock in the house is the complete opposite. It's a tiny museum, maybe an acre if you count the yard outside, but the little space is laser-focused on examining a single moment in time. Specifically, April 24th, 1995, 11.38 a.m. On that morning, Maxine Anderson stood in her kitchen in Fountain City, Wisconsin. Fountain City is a community on the state's very west edge, carved in the meager space between tall wooded bluffs and the mighty blue Mississippi. Though the world has changed vastly in the last century, the Mississippi River will always be a commercial artery. Despite everything, the town's population has remained about the same for as long as we've had census data. This constancy is reflected in the city's architecture. Other than a small quick trip and the occasional bed and breakfast, it's clear that not a lot new has been built here in a while. There's a lot of wood siding, brick, and just older styles of home construction in general. The Anderson's home is particularly interesting because it appears to be an amalgamation, built out and added to over time. 
The house is at 440 North Shore Drive, the very north end of town. Here, the bluffs loom especially close, mere yards from the river. This leaves just enough room for a row of single-family homes, two lanes of State Highway 35, two sets of train tracks, and an Army Corps of Engineers base. You can mostly only see the west face of the house from the road, so consequently, that's the side of the house that looks the best. It's a combination of concrete and red brick standing tall above a narrow sidewalk. The yard slopes such that it's actually the basement that steps out to this walk. More brick and concrete frame the stairs that lead up to the actual front entrance. A pair of small stone lions flank the door to the sunroom on the north side of the building. This entrance, too, is locked, but you can see some of the Anderson's furniture stored inside. Continuing along a brick path under the shade of a maple canopy, you come to the actual entrance, a white metal storm door which leads you right from a covered concrete patio into the kitchen. It was this kitchen with its white and blue cupboards and butcher block counters in which Maxine Anderson stood 27 Aprils ago. It was 11.38 a.m. Perhaps she was thinking about preparing an early lunch. Then, without warning, a 55-ton chunk of rock freed itself from the bluff above. Rolling, it ripped through the trees and came to a crashing halt in the master bedroom, not ten feet from where Maxine stood. It was a near miss, but Maxine and Dwight were unharmed. The house, of course, was not so lucky. Big chunks of the kitchen ceiling now hung down, and there were smaller cracks in the wallboard throughout the house. But the damage was concentrated at the point of impact. The bedroom was flattened. Thin wood walls and a tin roof gave no resistance, and now a meteor stood in their place. Though, despite being a rough disk in shape, the rock didn't roll any further. Miraculously, the rest of the house was still pretty livable. Of course, technically livable is not the same standard as actually feeling like a home. I don't know whether the Andersons were particularly religious, but I imagine it would be easy to take this event as a pretty clear sign that it was time to move. The only issue was, who would buy a house that seems just a bit... cursed? We don't have time to get into it, but this wasn't even the first time this happened. A rock fell on the same house in April of 1907, and it actually killed someone the first time. Perhaps the outcome we got was the best one possible. A local real estate investor bought the house and preserved it, more or less exactly as it was the day the rock fell. For just $2, anyone could take a self-guided tour, see the rock, and try to imagine themselves in the Anderson's shoes. So it was, for a quarter of a century, a simple little museum in an idyllic corner of Wisconsin. This Memorial Day, my wife and I happened to be driving through the area, and we stopped. Something had changed. The door was locked, and taped to the glass was a new handwritten note. Someone took away your privilege of seeing the rock and info about it by taking the money box and destroying the property. Signed, Owner. So that's it, I guess. After all these years, the rock in the house is dead. Since no one more qualified has stepped up, let's do an autopsy, shall we? The money box the note refers to was a rusty metal toolbox strapped to the house's low wrought iron fence. They asked each visitor to donate $2 and secured the cash with a couple $5 padlocks. By this, I mean they asked in more handwritten notes. Everything about the rock in the house was run on the honor system. There were no employees present, 
or no cameras even. Even with the nicest guests in the world, I would be really surprised if this was the first time the money box was stolen. Even if it was, even if 100% of the donations were going straight to the owners, I can't imagine that covered the cost of this place. In addition to property taxes, they were for some reason paying to keep the water and electricity running. That means they were probably paying for heat as well, if for no other reason than to keep the pipes from bursting in the winter. They were paying for a whole house full of expenses. And for what? So we could gawk with all the proper context? I can see how that would get old after a couple decades. Throw a little vandalism into the mix, and I can totally see how we got here. Luckily, if you haven't seen The Rock yet, there's some good news. The owners still allow visitors, but you can only explore around the outside. Thankfully, this includes walking right up to The Rock. Additionally, the house is registered as a historic site, so even if they wanted to sell, I doubt the next owner could change much without going through a couple of committees first. It's a little sad that visitors can't get the full museum experience anymore, but the rock in the house is still absolutely worth seeing if you're in the area. Although, if you're visiting in April, keep an ear to the ground. You never know when the impossible might happen again. If you'd like to suggest a topic for Parks and Landmarks to cover, please send it my way at sean.bull at wortfm.org. Tell me about your favorite underrated spot outdoors, or whatever you feel is related. This segment's title is intentionally broad, so just go for it. I'd love to hear from you guys. Again, that's s-e-a-n dot b-u-l-l at w-o-r-t-f-m dot org. For W-O-R-T News, I'm Sean Bull. And it's time now for the most comprehensive weather report on the airwaves with WORT weather guru, Rob McClure. Well, August started off warm and wet through its first week, though we've since transitioned to a cooler and drier regime, which I doubt is disappointing many people. We're currently 2.4 degrees warmer than normal for August and roughly two and a half times wetter than normal, thanks in no small part to the storms that we saw this past weekend. Both of those anomalies, though, should uh, begin to attenuate and continue to do so over coming days and perhaps weeks. Like the pattern that we saw through much of July, we continue to see a seesaw back and forth between warm and cold every several days, with the warm stretches often falling uh, across the weekend and the uh, cooler days then in the midweek. And we're going to cycle in a similar way again this coming week. But you might have noticed that the cool periods have slowly been trending longer and longer and the hot ones shorter over the past few rounds of this. And that trend will also continue this week with uh, really just the latter uh, Saturday into Sunday period being anything you might describe as particularly warm this time around with moderation then as we go into next week. And what's going on in the atmosphere to produce this is, uh, well, in a way, just the opposite of what the computer models at their longer ranges were indicating the past few weeks. And I think I alluded to this last Wednesday when I was on. Out, about pa- uh, out past about 10 days or so, the longer ranges of the models were all showing the upper ridge over the western half of the continent, finally building eastward over the Mississippi Valley region for a more extended period than just the one or two day forays that we've been seeing in the past few weeks. Recently, instead, what actually appears to be underway is a gradual retrogression westward 
of the ridge and indeed the downstream upper trough that's been hanging out most recently over the Ohio Valley and East Coast region. By contrast to last week, all the major models are now foreseeing the upper ridge with its hot air basically being confined back westward to the mountainous areas as we get out into next week with a steady stream of cool surface high pressure cells then getting directed southward down its front side fetch into the central and eastern plains and on down from there across the southern tier of states, even the northern Gulf of Mexico. This leads, on average, uh, to blocking of Gulf moisture from any significant or prolonged northward return, especially as the upper features of the ridge and the trough uh, later take on a more forward or positive tilt, which would allow drier, low-level air then to work further westward even into the western Gulf and across Texas. So we may be in for a comparatively humane uh, two or three weeks here coming up, both cool and dry, at least considering that it's mid-August, a period which can be exceptionally wet here in Wisconsin. Not much of note uh, coming up ahead of us in the coming five days, given largely northwesterly upper winds through that period and a general lack of moisture in the air column above us. Only uh, scattered mid and high clouds are likely to accompany tonight's frontal passage, which will be transitioning us into an even cooler Canadian surface high pressure than we saw over this past couple of days. We will see, as I mentioned, a transient push of warmer air behind that high-pressure cell Friday and Saturday as it leaves the area, and an upper wave traveling southeast bound off the top of the approaching upper ridge to our west uh, may end up coinciding sufficiently with that to lift some showers into existence at that time. That warm frontal precipitation would be primarily Friday midday if we see it, the way the timing at least is looking currently on the models. Though, uh, given the ridge position by then, it's likely those some of those storms, or all of them, will miss us actually to the west. We'll stay warmer on southerly winds then through Saturday, uh, nowhere near as warm as last Saturday with its 91, however, before veering winds behind a late-day cold front that day or in the overnight period uh, will take us cooler again for next week. That air mass transition Saturday into Sunday, by the way, also looks to be essentially bereft of moisture. But anyway, back to tonight for the brief details on the coming few days. Generally, clear skies may see an uptick in passing cumulus and some mid-level clouds uh, over the next few hours uh, from north to south across the area as that cold front drops through the listening area. Temperatures will uh, descend uh, through the 70s to the low 60s by dawn tomorrow on westerly winds veering north and northeasterly overnight uh, up at 4 to 7 miles per hour. Tomorrow, sky should continue to clear southward through the morning hours as surface high pressure pushes in. Temperatures will reach the mid-70s on light northeasterly winds at 4 to 8 miles per hour. Uh, lighter winds will veer more easterly through the overnight with temperatures dropping uh, probably into the mid and even possibly low 50s under what will be clear skies. A Friday, passing high and mid-level clouds uh, essentially moving north to south across the area skies uh, and thicker west than east will govern the temperatures to a certain degree. There will be in a cool air mass in any case. Uh, we may have a hard time even cracking 70 in some places where it stays cloudier, though I think low 70s are more likely given at least intermittent sun. Winds will veer lightly southeast and south, and that, along with uh, continued uh, cloud cover through the overnight, at least partial cloud cover, should uh, keep temperatures falling much below 60. And Saturday should see temperatures rebound then towards 80, uh, perhaps a little uh, higher. We'll have decent southwesterly winds that day, providing good mixing, but temperatures will again be a bit dependent on cloud cover. 
Dew points will come up into the upper 60s that day, so uh, more summer-like with the moisture levels. And then we'll hold in the mid or upper 60s through the overnight and then reach probably the upper 70s or 80 again Sunday with winds veering northwesterly. We will be cooler in the early part of the ensuing week. At the moment, down here at the station on Bedford Street, the temperature is 81 degrees. The dew point temperature is 64. Winds are light. They're out of the west currently at 5 miles per hour. Uh, generally clear skies, just a few small cumulus up at about 4,000 feet. And the barometer is falling at 30.09 inches of mercury. It's now 6.49 p.m. and you're listening to the live local news on WORT. We go now to August 1968, when a teen dance at Bree Stevens Field turns ugly and exposes the city's racial divide. Stu Levitan has the troubling news from 54 years ago this month on this week's Madison in the 60s. Madison in the 60s, August 1968, the incident at Breeze Stevens Field. It's hot and humid on Saturday night, August 3rd, cloudy, without much for breeze. About 400 teens are at Breeze Stevens Field, the old ballpark on East Washington Avenue. They're there for the weekly teen dance put on by Marco Productions. 50 to 75 blacks from downtown and the south side, the rest whites from the east and far east. Most everyone is there to dance and hang out. Some are there to make trouble. Some have been drinking. By 10.30 there are fights all around for all sorts of reasons, some racial, some not. Five off-duty police officers break up the fights but make no arrests inside the stadium. But when a mixed-race group turns on a cop and threatens him, Sergeant James Morgan ends the dance early at 11 p.m. Some fights move to Patterson Street, but most of the crowd heads for home. David Crary, son of the Far East Side Alderman, and three buddies, all of whom had earlier gotten into it with blacks, are in a car with the engine on and the lights off. The car suddenly lurches forward through a group in the street. The driver slams on the brakes but hits Willie James, 1735 Baird Street, breaking his ankle. In a flash, three or four black teens are atop the car and another half dozen or so alongside, smashing windows and denting the body. Police make no arrests but focus on dispersing the crowd, then taking James to the hospital. The white kids scatter, but scores of black youths take to East Washington Avenue, where someone breaks a window at Ridge Madison Motors. Some are disrupting traffic as they head to the square to catch a bus. A young black male is said to shout, let's burn White City down. Four officers on foot follow closely behind, and four squad cars cruise at walking speed alongside them. A cop tells them to quiet down. A black youth curses and gets arrested for using obscene language. When he resists, an adult and three juveniles try to interfere and are also arrested, all for disorderly conduct. Charges against the adult later be dismissed, 
the juveniles are never charged. Around midnight, a caravan of cars filled with white youths descends on the south side. As they cruise the streets hollering racial epithets, the blacks erect makeshift barricades. The east siders have to smash through them to get back home. Over the next few hours, the word gets around the black community that the police used racial epithets and arrested only black kids, letting whites go free. Equal Opportunities Director the Reverend James Wright, fearing tensions are so high that a full-scale riot could erupt, convenes an extraordinary public hearing in the city council chambers that afternoon after church. It's a chaotic session, dominated by charges of police racism, which Wright seems to support. There does appear to be a double standard regarding arrests, he says afterwards. The commission commends Wright for acting with alacrity, but the rest of Madison's political and law enforcement community is not happy with the emergency public hearing or the ad hoc committee Wright appoints to investigate further. Police Inspector Herman Thomas denies any double standard and says any racial trouble in Madison is caused, quote, by agitators from outside. And Thomas says he'll ask the Park Commission to stop the dances. Stuart Becker, president of the Police and Fire Commission, calls on Wright to, quote, cease and desist from further ventilating your complaints through the news media, which can only lead to heated racial tensions in the community. A group of 18 prominent black professionals, including State Equal Rights Division Chief Clifton Lee, Madison's son, editor-publisher Lawrence Sanders, attorney Percy L. Julian, the Madison Redevelopment Authority's Merritt Norville, assistant UW football coach L.H. Richardson, and Dr. N.O. Calloway, responds by charging that racism is prevalent in the Madison Police Department. In the execution of racial justice, they write the EOC, quote, Madison is in many instances as negligent as those notorious southern cities, which have made a tradition of ignoring the rights and needs of black citizens. This thinly disguised contempt for the comparative value of a black life has made a mockery of the phrase equal protection under the law. Noting that Madison still has no black officers, the group warns about the, quote, growing anger in the black community over police community relations. The police heatedly deny any racial bias or improper actions, citing the heroism of Sergeant Gerald Thorstenson in April when he saved a black teen from a mob of 30 whites kicking and hitting him, during which Thorstenson himself was also punched and kicked. Mayor Otto Feske admits things are bad. There has been a severe disruption, if not a complete breakdown in communication between the so-called establishment and Madison's minority community, he says. He promises a full and complete investigation. It is not news there is bigotry in the Madison Police Department, the Capital Times editorializes on August 15th. The racial bigotry that exists in the department was bound to get this community in trouble sooner or later. It's a good thing for the whole community that the racism in the department has come to a head and we can get the ugly thing out on the table and look at it. On August 20th, the council spends over an hour interrogating, criticizing, and sometimes defending Wright over the emergency hearing and his plans for an ad hoc committee investigation. I feel you stirred up a lot of turmoil in this city, says David Crary's aldermanic father, James, whom Feske did not reappoint to the EOC in April. Alder Harold Babe Rohr, 
who led the fight against the Equal Opportunities Ordinance in 1963, lectures right. You have failed to accomplish the duties entrusted upon you, he says. Mayor Feske counsels the commission to go along with whatever plan the council adopts, lest the aldermen think the EOC, quote, was acting like a defiant child. Two nights later, the council is more supportive, voting 18 to 1 to allow the EOC to conduct an inquiry into, quote, alleged racial tensions to determine if such tension exists, its causes and its effects on the welfare of the city. The only dissenting vote comes from Northside Alder Ralph Hornbeck, a former policeman. But the council doesn't fully trust the commission and explicitly blocks it from determining whether there are any violations of the Equal Opportunities Ordinance or police department rules and regulations. The commission gets to work. And that's this week's Madison in the 60s. For your award-winning, listener-supported WRT News team, I'm Stu Levitan. And that does it for our show this evening. Thanks for listening to WORT's live local news at 6. Our headline writer this evening was David Ahrens. Our reporter was Tegan Carter. Special thanks to our feature contributors, Sean Bull and Stu Levitan. Chuck Kateman mixed our sounds seamlessly on air. Nate Weggehow produced the newscast. And Shally Pittman is the news director here at WORT. I'm your host, Robert McClure. And I'm your host, Vicki Iden. Stay up to date with the WORT Local News Podcast. Subscribe on iTunes Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever else you get your podcasts. Up next is Query, followed by This Way Out. Have a good night. Mm-hmm.